So as Catherine sort of insinuated, I'm going to tell you something. And once I've told you, I want you to be really honest with your own feelings. Would you do that for me? Okay. <laughs> now, it's only 15 sleeps till Christmas morning. How does that make you feel? Are you nearly ready? Are you on track? There's some looks, sheepish looks out there. Um, are you one of those, and I'm going to insert the word, awful people, who probably get all they need back in the January sales this year, and they're sitting smugly here, smiling, yes, I'm ready. Well, you guessed it, I'm not one of those people. But I do remember getting really excited as a boy when on Blue Peter, maybe there's some of you who remember this, they had the Advent uh, candles lit, and it was on some fairly flimsy and certainly something very flammable piece of coat hanger bent with tinsel around it. Would break every health and safety rule in the book nowadays. Well, Frederick uh, Buchner, an American author and Presbyterian minister, in his book, Wishful Thinking, said this about Advent. He said, the extraordinary thing that is about to happen is matched only by the extraordinary moment just before it happens. Advent is the name of that moment. Well, we have the privilege of being in that moment this Sunday, that moment of readiness, that moment of preparation, that moment of anticipation. Remember when you were little, just how excited you got about Christmas. I still remember one Christmas Eve as a teenager walking home one evening, and it quite unexpectedly started to snow, big, huge flakes of snow. It was magical. Barbara disagrees with me. <laughs> I think about snow from that look, but it was magical. Um, but how much are you enjoying this moment, this time of Edmund? Maybe for you it's a time of just busyness and stress and little else. And I know it can be such a stressful time. People coming to stay, food to buy and prepare, presents to get, maybe spending time with people we may not choose to spend time with every, in other parts of the year. That's why I want us this morning to reclaim this run-up for Christmas, to reclaim this moment of Advent, of Advent, this moment of pause, of calm, this moment to consider the whole point of Christmas itself. And it is, of course, Jesus himself. And of course, we could go to any one of the four Gospels to look harder at Jesus this morning. All four of them written between one and two generations after the time Jesus walked those dusty roads of the Holy Lands. Why, though, did these four writers wait till that point to write about Jesus? Well, up till then, if you wanted to know about Jesus, you could just turn around and ask any one of the eyewitnesses around you in that small church of that time. You could, they would have remembered him because they knew him. They knew Jesus. They had seen him, heard him, lived with him, loved him. Could you imagine the privilege of speaking with one of those early disciples, of the joy of remembering Jesus? 
But as these men and women started to get older and started to die off, and as the church got bigger, which is brilliant, and stretched across the Mediterranean, there was a danger that the authenticity of being able to ask a first-hand witness was starting to disappear. People would start to surmise, make up their own Jesus, maybe missing the difficult parts about Jesus, maybe accentuating the parts they liked. So we are so blessed to have these four eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, his words, his actions, and his character. In these four Gospels lies the real Jesus. And this is where we should seek him out, here in the Gospels. Each of us have our own image of Jesus. But it's right to regularly challenge ourselves to how maybe we are writing a fifth gospel, the gospel according to ourselves, forming a Jesus who acceptably fits into, our, into my life and how I want to run my life, a Jesus who is a good accessory to my life. How do we mold the real Jesus, that real Jesus we find in the four gospels, to be our own version of him? Maybe chipping away and belittling and belittling his character until he is no Jesus at all. So let's try this morning to look anew at this real Jesus. This morning we get to look at these first eight verses of this shortest gospel. That great, and I love Mark's gospel, that great so succinct treasure that is Mark's gospel. And there are three things that I want us to notice about Jesus this morning from this amazing passage. So if you find it helpful, do keep your Bibles open. That's page 1002, and it's Mark chapter 1, verse 1 to 8. And right from the beginning, there's no messing with Mark. Mark gets to the point like nobody else. Mark starts in verse 1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. This is going to be good news. Prepare yourself, Mark says. He, you can tell he's excited right from the beginning. Gospel means good news. And here we are at the start of the greatest, most important good news everyone ever needs to hear. The good news about Jesus. And in case we are in any doubt, Mark makes it very clear. Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. This is Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, who the Jewish people have been waiting for all of history. Messiah meaning anointed one or chosen one. There were so many prophecies about him in the Old Testament. And in so many ways, the Old Testament looked forward to this moment of Jesus being born. A moment in history that even our calendars are anchored to. To the years before Jesus and the years after Jesus. Counting up to the year of Jesus' birth and then counting the years after, some 2,023 years later, to us today. But actually, for the geeks here, um, I, just, I just want to point out one small thing. It's actually amazing that when this system of our year counting was set up in 525 AD, they had to calculate when Jesus was born. And they were actually just five years out. So actually, a question for you at your Christmas dinner table is you could ask people, 
in what year was Jesus born? And I think some people will get it wrong because the answer is actually, experts think, is 5 BC now. So there you go. But I've gone completely off track. I <laughs> hope you uh, forgive me. My point is that Jesus' birth continues to be of such importance to all humankind. And Mark writes 50 years after Jesus was born and about 20 years after this incident with John the Baptist. He writes and he looks back through the Old Testament and quotes from the prophet Isaiah 500 years before Jesus was born. Isaiah wrote in chapter 40, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Well, for Mark and for so many of his readers who knew their Old Testament so well, this prophecy can only be about John the Baptist being the messenger, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, readying people for the coming of, and this would have been stunning to Mark's readers, for the coming of the Lord. In Isaiah's prophecy that Mark quotes, Isaiah stunningly uses the most holy word for God here. The name that Jews would barely breathe, let alone say, this was Yahweh. The most holy of names of God. And this is the bombshell here in the passage. John the Baptist, the voice in the wilderness, proclaiming the coming of God himself in Jesus. This was, for Jewish years, absolutely shocking. This is clearly and categorically saying that this man, born in a backwater of northern Israel, in Bethlehem, was and is God himself. Jesus is Yahweh, come to earth. Emmanuel, God with us. And this is the first stunning thing in this passage. This is history-changing, life-changing. In this, Christianity, amongst other world faiths, is unique. God, the holiest of holies, loves us and adores us so much that he doesn't leave us in our own mess, but descended to us and became one of us. Truly God, but now also truly man. So in 15 sleeps time, we will be singing these words, saving these words for that Christmas morning. We will sing together, Yea, Lord, we greet thee, born this happy morning. Jesus, to thee be glory given. Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. O come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord. I love that addition of that verse on Christmas morning, or the night before at midnight mass, but that's another point. This is Jesus, very God and very man, that came into our lives to show us love and to greet us. The long-awaited king that Jewish people have been waiting centuries for, eager for the words of Isaiah and the other prophets to come true. Now is the time. Jesus, God is coming. My second point in this passage is all to do with that word wilderness. Mentioned a couple of times in verse 3 and 4. Some translations translate wilderness as desert. This is the same word 
as used when Jesus would, after his baptism, toward the end of the same chapters we're looking at in Mark, would spend 40 days out in this wild desert where nothing grows, full of danger and hardship. This desert is the same desert that we read about in our passage in verse 5. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him, John the Baptist, in the Jordan River. So why is this important? And what do we learn about Jesus, about the people going out to meet John, to hear his message in the desert? Well, that's because, in general, in the Bible, again and again, this is one of the key themes of the Bible, that people meet, meet God in the desert. Moses met God at the burning bush in the wilderness. Where did Jacob wrestle with God? In the wilderness. Where did the Jewish people meet God? In Egypt? No. In Sinai, that huge desert between Egypt and Israel. Spending 40 years struggling with God, turning away from him, turning back to him. In those 40 years, God honed his people, making them ready to enter the promised land. So why is the wilderness the place people meet God? Well, it's that place, that place that you cannot survive without the intervention of God. Here, the people of God learned that God was not an add-on to life. God is life itself. We ask maybe, what's that got to do with us in Claygate in 2023? Well, in the New Testament, the writers of Hebrew in chapter 3 says that we all meet Jesus in the wilderness. That for so many of us, we only meet him when we go through wilderness experiences in our lives. When all that we rest on, all our security fails. When what we put our faith in fails. When we really find our value in goes wrong. When that job we have invested in so much fails. When that pension fails. When that relationship fails. When our families or our health or our youth fails. All these ultimately fail. So many of us truly meet him in these moments. For me, although I came to faith in my teens in Shropshire, I had a massive wake-up call in my 20s when two of my discs in my back ruptured and I couldn't sit down for about a year. This wilderness moment for me woke me up and brought me back to him. By bringing me back here to Holy Trinity and ultimately making it possible for me to be ordained and have the privilege of serving you here. I thank God for that desert moment in my 20s. And I'm sure many of you can think of desert moments in your lives when God felt so present. These things in life are not bad. Families, relationships, jobs, pensions, security, bank accounts, they're not bad. But C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity wrote, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they, that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give us this, but they never quite keep their promise. 
It's not until we realize that we absolutely need him, really need him, when we realize the other things will never keep their promises. Now, it is possible to realize this without going through a desert experience. However, for many of us, and excuse my language, we are so bloody-minded that maybe we can only see our need when we have these desert moments in our lives. Maybe when redundancy comes or a relationship that we're so dependent on stops, either through irreconcilable uh, breakdown or even the death of someone we love. When our health declines, even in those sad situations, in those wilderness times, we can find God. Or maybe more accurately, God finds us. He is there. He is always there. But so often we are not ready for him until those moments, those raw moments, where our senses are sharper, our needs more acute, our need was there before, but we weren't looking to him to satisfy these. We were looking elsewhere. In these moments, these raw moments, God is there. And that's my second point. Jesus is there in all times, but so often we're not ready for him until all else is stripped away and we see all the rest of our life and what it is. On to my last point for this morning's talk, and that is baptism. Until this point in the desert with John the Baptist, until this point in history, the vast majority of ritual cleaning in Jewish culture was all about ritually cleaning oneself prior to going somewhere more holy, like the temple. For Jews, this would have been hands and feet and heads preparing to go in worship. For Gentiles, there had to be more thorough cleaning of the whole body. That's non-Jews. And this was something that people would do for themselves. And there's a key learning here for us today. Here with John the Baptist, and there's a clue in his name, he did the baptisms. That stark truth is that we cannot clean ourselves enough. We cannot do this for ourselves. Hang on again, surely you may be thinking, isn't this just a remnant of ancient times, this religious cleaning? But how often do we, friends, think, even subconsciously, that we're doing something to clean ourselves, doing that act of kindness, coming even here to church, avoiding some things that we know are frowned upon by polite society? How much do we even subconsciously try and earn our own cleaning? Sometimes it's so much easier, isn't it, to give something to somebody than to receive a gift from them. It's much easier sometimes to give help to somebody else than ask for help that we need. We so like to sort things out ourselves. And yet the truth here in that, this last verse of our passage is that we can never do enough cleaning Good deeds to make, we can never do enough good deeds to make a scrap of difference to our salvation. Our only way to be saved is through the Messiah. Meeting Jesus in that wilderness place when we know we really need him in humility, receiving from him and only him that baptism from the Holy Spirit. And he longs to give you that. John said, I baptize you with water but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus came to do. 
As ministers here at Holy Trinity and across the world, it's a pleasure and a privilege to baptize men, women, and children and babies as an outward sign of Jesus' amazing giving of himself through his death on the cross that enables us to be baptized with and in his Holy Spirit. Jesus is God himself, come down into our lives, meeting us exactly where we are today. Whether we thought we had it all sorted and now are starting to wonder whether we do. Or maybe we have always known that there's a veneer we put up to the outside world. A public face of everything is all right. And yet we know actually we're internally in such a mess. Maybe we've been trying to pretend this for so long that we've forgotten how to take away that mask. The truth is that Jesus knows each and every one of us so well, better than we know ourselves, in fact. He knows exactly what we're doing in our lives. He knows exactly how we're made because he made us. The amazing truth, though, is where that intimate knowledge of each one of us, he still loves us so much and adores us and he longs to meet us this Christmas. May God bless you.